Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure it is to see Jeff Lindsay again with the third Riley Wolf Master Thief heist novel called Three-Edged Sword. And as you can tell, this is not a real book. This is the printout, the manuscript printout that the publisher sent me. But Jeff assures me, hi, Jeff, that hi. he has signed our books and they are winging their way even now to Scottsdale. So if you'd like to order one, Patrick will put a link, a buy link in the comments field. And you can think about what a great Christmas gift it will give. And they're um, all authentically autographed by me. I didn't give it to my daughters to sign this time. So <laughs> please don't say that. We'll have to go back and authenticate the first two. Come on, Jeff. Anyway, we haven't seen Jeff for a while, thanks to the pandemic. And many of you know him, of course, for writing Darkly Dreaming Dexter and the sequels and the television. But um, good things <laughs> often come to an end. And it's fun to have a new series. Riley Wolf. I will point out that Jeff is, it's actually pronounced daddy, but Jeff, notice the mustache with the waxed ends? He was challenged to look like Salvador Dadi, who is remembers the surrealist artist that I think is years old. When you're eight years old, it's Dolly. Okay. So, but the point is that maybe you should think about, since Riley Wolf is such a thief, maybe he should go after a Dali at some point. I would love to. I think the great yeah. masturbator, it's one of my favorites. You could look at that for hours. Well, what do you got behind you? There's a really interesting thing on the wall, but I can't see it all that clearly. Um, directly behind my head? Uh-huh. Well, that's a big Dexter poster. And just beside that is my telescope with a, a Dexter New Blood stocking cap. Okay. And to the side of that is one of my bases, a 12-string guitar, and of course the obligatory skull with a candle melted on top. So this is your writing room? Absolutely. Wonderful. Every author should have one. When I talk to British authors, they frequently tell me they're writing in their garden shed, which I think is Brit speak for. It's not attached to the house, but it's probably pretty posh, all things considered. But I like that image of the shed. So you're in Florida, right? So are you actually in a shed? Um, I'm not giving away my location due to uh, death threats, and I wish I was kidding. Oh, I'm but, sorry, Jeff. Um, I've, I've been sort of trying to keep personal information uh, quiet for the last couple of years. Ah, well, I'm sorry I even mentioned it, but it's a big state, so let's hope that that doesn't come up. Um, Three-Edged Sword is third in this series that began with Just Watch Me. Um, wow. And what you, what you like doing is setting Riley Wolf impossible tasks. But why don't we talk about Riley a little bit? Master thief, expert at disguise, willing to embrace violence when necessary. What else do we need to know about it? Well, there's the parkour, which is something I discovered when I was, um, I was just doing general research for this new character I was creating. And I came across something called parkour. And if you haven't heard of it, it basically is a, a, an art that turns normal people, well, normally you have to be athletic. It turns you into Spider-Man. Um, and you can go on YouTube and look it up and you'll see people doing impossible things, running up a wall, uh, leaping from building top to the next one over. And um, it's really remarkable. So I made him an expert at that. It's one of his signature things that he can get away straight up the front of a building. Um, and I think his backstory is important too. From the first book, Just Watch Me, by the way, in case no opportunity comes up later to mention this, uh, just watch me is, I'm going to use my favorite cliche, soon to be a major motion picture. Is it? Yes. And um, uh, in that, it's it, his backstory reveals, you know, that it, he was forced into this thing by peer pressure and being the odd kid out and all of that. And someone died. And um, you really have to read Just Watch Me Too, but let's start with this book anyway his backstory makes him compelled to do things that everyone else says that's impossible and he says um what people say is impossible that's where i begin and his motto is there is always a way and he thinks he doesn't think outside the box he thinks without the box so for example when he does a prison break the idea is not to get him out of the prison. 
it's um, to make the prison uh, more amenable to the idea of him getting out, if you will. It's just a different way of thinking. Uh, maybe that was a bad example. But the idea is he thinks he's learned to think in a different way that allows him to do things that everyone else thinks are impossible. And because of rewrites, which I don't have when I'm speaking live, it really makes a lot more sense in the book, um, Three-Edged Sword, available now wherever fine books are sold. Right, at the Poison Pen, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I took to Just Watch Me because I've always had a fondness for Tope Copy which is a wonderful heist movie with Peter Ustinov. And I, I adored Peter Ustinov anyway. I thought he could do almost anything. But Topkapi is about breaking into the famous palace in Istanbul and stealing an impossible thing. Um, and, you know, it's an old movie now. So the, the, the movie, the techniques and all the rest of it look pretty dated to us. I mean, you know, there's, you have to allow for that. But nonetheless, um, it's just a, it's a great heist novel. I, I don't think To Catch a Thief is anything that Hitchcock really was a different kind of a movie, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm not as familiar with that one. Um, anything with Peter Ustinov in it, I will watch anytime. Uh, he was wonderful. Um, but, um, you, you know, since you mentioned it, outdated, we're also all tired of seeing the grid of laser detectors and Tom Cruise coming down on a spider web to, in between them. And Riley Wolf doesn't work that way either. Um, in fact, in the first book, he has something like that to overcome. And he does it by persuading um, the people in charge to turn it off to look at another threat while he's stealing something else. So that's what I mean by not thinking outside the box, but without the box. Well, he's clearly a master of diversion. Um, the reason I like to catch a thief, just a, as a little coda, is because I will watch anything with Cary Grant in it as well, as Peter Ustinov. Um, and, you know, Grace Kelly is there, but it's not nearly as interesting with her as it is about Cary Grant. Anyway, moving back to Riley Wolf. So it seems like the challenge for you then, Jeff, is that if he has to think outside of the box, you clearly have to think outside the box before you put pen to paper. So how do you do that? Do you just sit around there in your wonderful room with your Dexter Memorial and memorabilia rather and, and dream up things? Um, it's a little harder than that. Um, as you point out, the uh, the Riley Wolf books are, are very much plot oriented. They're, they're schemes and that's not really it was never one of my strong points. The Dexter books were all sort of smooth narrative. Uh, Riley Wolf has to have um, an impeccable clockwork scheme with a thousand parts in it. So it takes me a really long time to get that going. Um, and then, of course, once I get it going, it's relentless and unstoppable. But <laughs> um, after 10 or 12 rewrites, uh, it's really a lot more work than I'm used to. And uh, I resent that part of it bitterly, of course. So basically, you've done you've done one a year for three years, which I think is really impressive. But part of that is because it was during the pandemic when there wasn't a whole lot else to do. But are you going to be able to keep up that pace for him? I'm actually hoping it'll get easier. Um, during the pandemic, um, a lot of my other writer friends and musician friends said this too. At first when we went into voluntary lockdown, everybody was excited and doing a hundred projects furiously. Um, and for example, in the first six months of the lockdown, I wrote four new plays, a dozen new songs and outlined two or three other books. Uh, and then all of a sudden the stress catches up to you. Um, and I just sort of trickled to a stop because you reach a point where because the human mind and system is not designed to take continuous stress over a long period of time. We're really good at something immediate. Um, with practice, we can get three or four days or a week or two, but uh, three years of constant stress starts to take a toll. And I got to the point where I'm thinking, what's the point? Well, I'll be dead. Why should I finish the book? <laughs> and so that's when we went into what I call the cookie emergency, uh, where basically um, I would order cookies online and eat them and sit at my desk and go, uh, I can't write today. And as I said, a lot of other people I talked to felt the same way. 
So I'm hoping as things ease back into, I hesitate to use the word normal, I don't think there's much of that left in the world, but as things ease back into a less stressful uh, um, everyday existence, it'll get a little bit easier again. I hope you're right, but as you point out, nothing is ever gonna be quite the same as it was. We're living through, fortunately, we've lived through an election that didn't go totally off the rails, so that stressor has- You're really, uh, you're really giving Florida a run for the crazy state, aren't you? You know, I wasn't gonna say that, but isn't it true? And yep. yet, you know, we had a fabulous smackdown from a federal judge at the end of the last week, you know, who said, not only did he say that these frivolous lawsuits have to stop, but he is making the attorneys who filed them pay. And, yes. you know, and I'm hoping that as a result, these people who want to file the crazy suits uh, won't be able to find representation. But then moving aside, just digressing here, moving aside from the political frivolous lawsuits, did you read about the Kraft mac and cheese woman? Um, I saw a headline about it. I don't remember any details. It's unbelievable. She's suing for $5 million because it took three and a, the, the package directions that take three and a half minutes. She, it takes it that five. I know, and you know, she was, she was um, I guess, inconvenienced by having it take longer. It reminds me of the woman, you know, at McDonald's with the boiling hot coffee. Yeah. Um, I, and what I don't know is how anybody actually files these suits or why the courts don't reject them at the outset. So she may preempt Kari Lake and, um, you know, the other people who are still trying to litigate the election. I had to think of uh, when I was a kid, there was an ad in the back of most comic books, amazing space phone, communicate uh, without batteries or wires. And I ordered it and it turned out to be two plastic things with a string in between and you pull the string tight. And kind of the lesson is what'd you expect? But I could have sued because it's not from space, I suppose, uh, if this were to happen today. You know, yeah, I think that the thing that most needs cleaning up, frankly, is the legal community. I'm I'm really happy not to be practicing law anymore because I, I do think that it's really gone off the rails. And part of it to be, I think part of it may be that there's not enough money to go around anymore uh, in the legal profession. And some of them are, you know, really grasping. Other countries, just to further this digression, do not have contingency fees. And, you know, we are, our system allows people, lawyers to take on clients on a totally speculative basis, except in criminal law where it doesn't work that way, but in civil law and so forth. And, and that means that anybody can file any crazy suit and the lawyer is risking his time, but the plaintiff doesn't have to put up any money. Yeah. And, you know, that's why we have this. If you go to other countries, it doesn't work that way. It shouldn't work that way. We do need overall and if I'm getting political, stop me now, but I think we could we could start at the top with that um, in overhauling the legal system. Yes, definitely so. You, you're talking about the politicians wearing robes. I am, in fact. <laughs> well, I think we've all seen that. My, my answer to most of this is term limits. I think that we have to have term limits for the justices, and I think we need to overhaul it because the minute somebody gets elected to Congress, they're running for Congress. They hardly ever have time to actually do their job because in two year cycles, they're already running for Congress again. But I think I think term limits, if we've done it for the president, why can't we extend it? I really well, think that should be the moral of the, you know, the last few years is why can't we fix it like we fixed it for the president? I also think um, a code of ethics, which is actually enforced um, would be a good idea. Or if you testify that you believe in something and then you throw it away as your first opportunity, you think that there ought to be grounds there. But anyway, we digress yeah. because we're here to talk about, and he's in Florida and I'm in Arizona, which is why we're doing this because it's so embarrassing to live in either state. But anyway, uh, Riley Wolf, you know, to some degree too, Jeff, he must be an adrenaline junkie. I mean, you know, aside from the fact that he um, wants, he's constantly, what, testing himself, proving a point, the rush must be hard for him to give up. It, it is, but not just the adrenaline. Uh, it's because he's proving it. You know, okay. you said I couldn't do it. I showed you. Show. I showed you. I did it. See, and it's uh, when I referred earlier to the backstory. It's that little boy that had to prove it, 
um, that's still inside and saying, oh yeah, I can too. Well, the other thing that I think must be fun for you, and since COVID, I'm not too sure that you actually got to go there, but the landscapes of these books are really interesting. We've been in an island off Lithuania. We start this book, The Three-Edged Sword, in Botswana, which I have been to visit, and um, I have, unfortunately, have not been to the Kalahari, partly because it's really a tough oh. place to go. But I did, for a number of years, edit an author when Poison Pen Press was still still ours before we sold it, um, who wrote about Botswana, not like Alexander McCall Smith and the number one ladies to take of agency, but on a, in a different way, and whose son actually is very high up in the civil service in Botswana. And so I learned a lot about it. It is a fascinating country. Yes, um, and the geography of it is intriguing, but one of the, one of the advantages to Botswana for Riley Wolf was their serious mining Botswana. So I'm, have you been to Botswana or did you have the fun of, you know, researching it all from your, from your office? It, it's all done this time from my office. Uh, again, you know, even 10 years ago, it probably wouldn't have been possible. But with um, the ability to see pictures from 360 degrees um, of any spot on earth, basically, really makes things easier. Um, the availability of uh, limitless information on any subject uh, is has changed everything. The only problem is filtering it to know, uh, well, it's like being on one of the social media. You have to have a source you can trust, uh, and you have to be able to filter out the things that are not true, not trustworthy. So Riley is in Botswana. Why is he there? This is the very front part of the book, so we're not doing any spoilers right. by telling you this. No. Um, at the end of the last book, um, he was in the Indian Ocean with his sometime partner, Monique, and um, she sustained a serious traumatic brain injury and went into a coma. Um, the nearest really good hospital was Cape Town, South Africa. I almost did the accent there. I just did the audio book. <laughs> South Africa. Um, and uh, so he takes her there and he's waiting for her to get better. Um, the doctors, of course, say, you know, we can't hold out much hope, this kind of injury, nama, 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 nama. But he knows that she'll get better because she has to. He will will it to happen. And while he's waiting, uh, he gets bored and looks around for something to do. And, you know, as you mentioned, there's interesting thing about Botswana, which is just over the border from South Africa, and that is that it has diamonds. And if you're the world's greatest thief, you have a more than casual interest in diamonds. So that's how he gets over there. Indeed. Well, they have serious diamonds in South Africa, too. But to some degree, I've been to the Kimberley mine. I've actually ridden on Robus Rail from uh, Pretoria <laughs> to Cape Town. And it, when you do that, you get to spend a day at the Kimberley mine, which is a gigantic hole in the ground at this point. Um, and it does have, they do perfected lots of security because it would be so easy for people digging for diamonds, so to speak, to steal diamonds. Um, how is it in Botswana? Did you have to research whatever security systems they have? Um, a, a bit, yes. And uh, I'm not positive this is still true, but I had, read that at least initially um every day every miner when they left the mine they were subjected to an x-ray and i'm hoping that that's that was stopped in the um not in the distant past but probably only in the recent past uh so yeah the security starts um at the perimeter and works its way to sometimes over a mile underground and every single possible step um is is wired with kinds of security that most of us can't imagine so riley he's doing this because he's bored right he's not under yes. any particular commission so is he just is he just there to make a diamond hall i mean what's his goal he's there because uh he reads an ad um or an, a small article in a paper that uh this particular diamond mine the Kerese Mosa which I invented, that's the um, Botswanan word for Christmas. Um, and I love the sound of it, Kerese Mosa. 
he reads that they have um, a fine collection of top quality gems that are now ready to be inspected and sold to you know the world diamond market, which means that they are there on site and not underground or in a vault. They're, they're just in a safe in the display area ready to be shown. And he figures, what the heck, as long as I'm here, um, I'll do that. And I should point out that that's not even really what the, the book is about. That's just the jumping off point. Well, if he is not there doing that, he can't get into trouble and go in a different direction. If he were just sitting around in Cape Town in the hospital, none right. of this would happen. But, you know, I, I do think you've always gone for real high stakes. And just watch me. If I remember right, it was the Iranian crown jewels that he yes. went after. And then in Fool Me Twice, it was the Fabergé egg, of which there are well, actually, there's a surprising number of Fabergé eggs that have survived the Russian Revolution. There's a lot of other Fabergé in addition to the eggs, but the eggs are kind of... The eggs are the, are the famous thing. But in um, Fool Me Twice, the Fabergé egg is just, again, the jumping off point. Okay. And what he really is, uh, is about is stealing a fresco. <laughs> which, which is, you know, it's impossible. I mean, a fresco is, is painted on a wall, if any of you have ever been to see the Last Supper in Milan. More than that, it's painted into the wall. wall. Yeah, it's painted as the plaster um, is drying, so that it soaks in and dries with the wall. And of course, it's you can't steal a wall, especially this one happens to be in the Vatican. Um, but I did do my research. I consulted with some very good uh, scientists, and I finally got one of them who helped me develop something that he said, "Okay, it's not plausible, but it's possible." And that's what I look for. I try not to do anything that's just outright impossible. Uh, it has to have some degree of possibility, however small it is. And the same is true with, uh, with uh, this one, Three-Edged Sword. Um, it does seem impossible, but there is a tiny degree of possibility, and that's what Riley Wolf does. He finds it. So what's happened in the last book, what happens in this book, is there's somebody with a different agenda. And that person zeroes in on Riley, who has put himself at risk by whatever it was, well, by the egg or the fresco, or in this case, the diamonds. Um, and, you know, I think that's an interesting device that, you know, he gets hoist by his own petard, as we say, yeah. um, because if he, if he weren't already up to whatever he's up to, um, he couldn't then be hammered by somebody who says, okay, gotcha. And now I want you to do, to do this. Um, so I, I want to know about the island off Lithuania before we go any further. I've been to Lithuania, and I don't think I ever even envisioned an island. Must um, be in the, it's in the Baltic, right? Must be in the, in the Baltic. Baltic. And the island with a lighthouse on it is possible. <laughs> um, I don't know if there is one either, but it, um, it's certainly possible. And that area, the coastline, uh, is a lot of it is marsh and um, you know grassy marshes and things like that with where the the ground shifts around the water shifts it's a very dangerous area for navigation um, and so it's a good place to put a, a lighthouse um, and things since the ground and the water and all of that is so variable it, it's easy enough even with 17th century technology to make an artificial island and so it's highly possible that there could be one there. And it's almost certain that along that coast, there are lighthouses. Absolutely. Or is this one of those things with sort of shifting sands where unwary people walking along can suddenly just disappear? Um, not that I know of. Uh, I do know that occasionally uh, during sailing ship days, uh, a pirate or a smuggler would uh, try to come in that way. And sometimes if they weren't careful or if it had shifted, they'd run aground and get caught. But there were a series of channels and things through those marshes back in those days that um, were very handy for people who wanted to come and go without being noticed. Gotcha. So it's more like Cambridgeshire and the Thins where they dug the various channels to kind of drain the marshy land so people could live there as opposed to some places I have, I've only seen them on the British coast and I'm trying to remember, I think it's off Lancashire or something, but anyway, there are. You can also think of, of Pinamunda area in Germany, if you've okay. been there, 
very similar. Right. So what happens is you need a guide, somebody that can kind of keep up with, you know, yes. the safe places to step. And in thrillers, you know, you always wait for somebody to take an unwary step. So who are the guys or who the guy in this book? How far, I don't know how far you want to go talking about it, but here Riley um, is <coughs> engaged in the diamond house and that is a pretext or not a pretext, a prelude rather to something worse happening to him. So it's a trap. Tell us how much of that you want to, however much of that you wish. Um, I don't know how much of it would spoil things. Uh, I'm no judge of that. I'm willing to tell the whole story, but it would take much longer. <laughs> well, there's um, Riley gets coerced um, by, believe it or not, his own people this time. It's a rogue CIA operation, and he stumbles into their hands um, and off he goes. Oh, no, wait. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Yes, I have the wrong title right. here. And what's at stake this time is, is um, or not at stake, but there's a Russian icon in play. And yes. um, icons are for Russians almost like living saints. Um, right. They're tremendously important religiously, but they're also incredibly beautiful um, and valuable. They, the Greek Orthodox, I've spent a lot of time in Turkey and Istanbul, which is one of my favorite cities. And there's some astonishing icons to be found there. I, I saw a bunch of them when I was in Ukraine, which is what I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in Romania. I, I mentioned that area and I'm thinking Ukraine like most right. people. But Romania has some gorgeous ones too that, I, that got me interested. But the thing is, most people who know what an icon looks like, they think of these elongated, sort of stiff, unnatural figures. But this particular artist, Simon Ushakov, um, his stuff is amazing. If you look it up, it's so different. The colors are more vibrant and alive. And uh, he was the number one guy, you know, the, the court and anyone who was Russian Orthodox um, wanted one of his because they were, they're just, they're fabulous compared to the other ones. And often um, if he's representing a starry sky, each star in the sky will be a real gem. Uh, and the gold paint is real gold. Um, he, he really pimped them up when, once he got popular. So Riley, of course, knows this <laughs> because he's a, um, Riley started as trailer trash and he's done everything he can to make himself better than the so-called cognoscenti elite, all of that. Um, and for example, the guy who coerces him into working by offering him a shot at the Ushakovs um, is a Boston Brahmin, but he drinks brandy with ice cubes in it. Oh. And that gives Riley a chance to go. And he thinks he's, he's hot stuff. You know, really, what a barbarian. Only savages put ice in brandy. Oh, my God. How <laughs> certainly true. Well, you know, icons. I mean, one of my favorite icons is on the island of Torcello. Um, off Venice, there's Murano and there's Burano. Murano's glass and Burano is lace making and Torcello is, I, I'm trying to remember, I think it's the Black Virgin, if I have it right. But anyway, um, not only are the images, uh, the painting wonderful, but they're they are generally, there can be gems, there's usually lots of gold around them. Aren't they usually painted on boards? Yes, usually on boards, sometimes on, for example, copper. Um, yeah. And as I said, Ushakov being the most popular, most highly paid and sought after, he could afford whatever he wanted to paint on, even if it, he wanted to paint on a big plaque of gold. So There's some um, beautiful ones in, um, not Serbia, this is Serbia. We did a cruise from uh, Black Sea to Budapest. I've also been around the Black Sea before the Black Sea became part of, you know, all of what's going on. Um, and cruise the Russian Navy, which I've always remembered in a little Russian tour boat. <laughs> My Russian from Stanford kicked in. And so we were, there we were, first with the Russians going around Sebastopol to see the Russian Navy. That was in 2011, before things went bad. You just but, made it. Um, there are some amazing ones. Where, where in Romania? I'm trying to think. Uh, where, where in the world are the icons in Romania? Which was a communist country? Well, in, in, in the Romania is an Orthodox country in right. terms of religion. And so there are uh, the cathedrals and there. I visited a monastery too. Um, and it had some great stuff. Is it Constantia? Is that where they are? Rather this than was in Josh. Oh, okay. Josh. Josh. 
which is spelled Iasi. <laughs> and I was at the Budapest airport going, uh, plane to Iasi, Iasi. And they're going, really? <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Oh. Asking a Romanian to tell you something without paying them for it uh, can be a very tricky proposition. <laughs> I say this with fondness. <laughs> One of my great mentors was a Romanian directing teacher. You know, I'm so glad they finally got rid of Ceausescu. Actually, if you're there, there's a museum in um, Bucharest, and they have a, a movie of of the riot and then the capture and then the execution of Ceausescu, which they play continuously, which I think is, you know, because they are so enchanted to have gotten rid of him. Um, and, you know, it's another one where it makes you wonder, how did some guy like that ever get a lock on power? In, um, in the country for so long. Well, now now we're back to American politics again, so <laughs> I'm going to skirt that one. Okay, I wasn't making any comparison, but it is very hard to, you know, if you go to China, the Cultural Revolution still casts the shadow at Mao, and if you're in Romania, it's almost impossible to get away from memories from Ceausescu, particularly because he built this enormous marble palace in the middle of the capital. Well, my um, friends that I met there were, were still talking about him. So, yes. Yeah. Anyway, um, so Icon, rogue CIA agent, and Riley um, forced because of his um, attempt to steal diamonds to do their bidding. And that's probably all we want to say, isn't it? I think so. Um, I do think it's one of his more successful um, disguise actions, too. Um, uh, in which he persuades the villain that he is actually someone else um, and uses that to get into this secure location and there is no escape without death because there are, aside from security that's electronic and mechanical, there are, there's a team of uh, former Spetsnaz um, soldiers guarding it. So um, it has to be a really good imposture. Um, and when he does that, he he truly, like the most method of actors, he becomes that character. Um, there's a passage in this book talking about spending time in the clothing of the new person, for example, because clothing um, dictates to a certain extent how you move. Um, if I was wearing a suit right now, I wouldn't be slumped like this, I promise. And if it was a tuxedo, I might be standing with a glass of champagne. But aside from that, uh, any kind of clothing you wear uh, affects your movement. So he spends time wearing the clothing, being the person, acting like the person until it's more than just a cosmetic disguise. It's a complete psychological disguise. He believes he's that other person too. Uh, and that's that's really the secret to doing something like this on on a deep cover escapade like this. You know, you're so right about movement. I mean, all you have to do is go to the airport today and see what clothing has unleashed. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I remember back, you know, when I was young, which was a really long time ago, we got dressed up to go on flights. I mean, yes. we you know we put on suits and we wore high heels, and if you're a girl, anyway. And they had, you know, like real silverware and, and tablecloths, and it was very elegant. And, you know, you go to the airport now, I've seen people in their pajamas, you know. Well, to, to be fair, most of the people I see now are wearing their very best flip-flops. Okay, well, it's, yeah, we were talking about that today. It's been very cold and rainy for Arizona. It's been in the low 60s and rainy. And, you know, we're kind of bundled up. And I pointed out to the friend I was walking with that if we went downtown to buy the bookstore at Old Town Scottsdale, all the visitors would be in shorts and flip-flops. Mm -hmm. 63 is actually a heat wave um, if you're from Michigan, for example, yes. right now, or Minnesota. So, you know, that's relevant too. But I mean, I think your point about how you dress, you know, I think about, you know, the academic robes that Oxford and Cambridge, you know, have people wear or uniforms that um, students wear in various prep schools or religious schools or so forth. And, you know, if you're wearing a, a jacket and a tie and the whole bit, you're going to behave differently than if you're in a, a hoodie. Um, right, exactly. Yep. So I see I see your point. Peter Lovesey has a really interesting book. You may not know who he's, he's a 
British author I'm going to be talking to tomorrow, and he's got an acting company going on. And he points out, um, somebody said, you know, how did the actors really get into these roles? And he said they learn everything they possibly can, and they practice the speech, and they wear the clothes and all. And then when they step on the stage, they forget it all because they have to just be that person, which right. is more or less what you're saying. Yes. Well, I had a, a, a background in theater, which is what got me started in that direction. Um, you know, I have uh, two master's degrees in theater, and I spent uh, a lot of years trying to get a theater company going. And um, I've, I've acted, directed, and written for, for years in the theater. So I like to think this helps me see it from all sides. As an actor, how you get inside the character and what that makes you do. Uh, as a director, how you would want the actor to do that. And as a writer, basically, you know, here, make this work. <laughs> um, so that affects it a, a lot of, um, of how I think about that. Are you a visual writer? Do you see what's going on as you're writing it down? I do. And I think it must come across, uh, you know, since uh, virtually every series I've written at some point, um, someone has wanted to make a movie or a TV series out of it. And I think it's just because it is visual. And um, it, um, I, I, wrote a, I wrote screenplays before I ever wrote a novel and plays, theatrical plays, before I wrote um, screenplays. Well, that makes sense. And also, if you're dialogue heavy, it makes it a lot easier to, um, you know, to translate it into a visual media. I mean, right. books that have lots of interior dialogue and description and so forth are much, much more difficult to film. And since you mentioned it, um, just watch me. Are you involved in, um, in any of it? Are you, are you involved in the writing room or are you a, like an executive producer or something? What's going on? I'm an, I'm an executive producer. Um, I happen to know the screenwriter and I wouldn't interfere with him because he's extraordinarily good. It's a guy named Derek Kolstad. Kolstad, he's not foreign. Um, I'm sorry, he's from Wisconsin. Uh, he's a friend of mine, and he's the guy that created and wrote the John Wick movies. So I think I can guarantee there'll be some great action sequences in uh, Just Watch Me Too. Wonderful. Wow, That's, is it, it's a movie, not streaming television, right? Right. But, you know, it's interesting how how different um, it is when they when they expand something into streaming TV or you know series TV or whatever it is, as opposed to movies. But I think in your high action books that probably movies make more sense, don't they? I think so. Um, and again, you know, Dexter being narrative and character driven and all that, right. it made more sense for it to be a TV series. But yeah, this is action and it's character driven action because that's what I do, you know, that's what gets me interested is the characters, but it is, it, it is fairly active. So were you, how deeply were you involved in Dexter? Um, I consulted on the pilot episode and then I stayed in touch and I visited the set when I could. And uh, it was a great relationship. You know, I, I told them from day one, I'm here if you need me, I'll stay away if you don't. And it worked out very well. And at, um, I was invited along, for example, to the Peabody Awards ceremony, even went up to get the award with the producers. So I have no complaints at all about the relationship there. They were, they were really, you know, very respectful. That's wonderful. Well, obviously, you know, you didn't give yourself a reputation for being difficult or they might not want to continue by doing just watch me. So. No, I think my reputation is insane, but not necessarily difficult. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there's a difficult, I mean, there's a real distinction between being insane and being obnoxious. <laughs> so maybe that all worked out. I love Darkly Dreaming Dexter. I still remember how much fun it was to read that. Um, and, you know, I, I will say, Jeff, I thought you did well to keep that work that series going for as long as it did on that premise. It's very difficult, I think, when you have, it's hard to do humorous mystery for a long, a long time, but it's also hard to do something that um, unusual and keep it believable for such a long time. You did really well with it. Well, thank you. It's, um, 
what I always wanted was to have a series that, you know, like John D. McDonald, for example, um, just a series that you could make it last for a while with interesting characters, interesting stories. And um, so Dexter fulfilled that for a while. It was, um, it was never an automatic pilot. I had always said to readers that if I felt like it was getting easy and I was just phoning it in, I'd stop. And I think I, I stopped before that happened. I sure hope people think so anyway. Well, you could be the, you know, the only person who could be a judge of whether you were bored with it or finding it, you know, no longer as interesting as you. But um, yeah, no, I thought you did really well. And let me Thank end you. up before Patrick comes back by asking if you're working on another Riley Wolf or are you I doing am. something different? Uh, well, both actually. <laughs> um, I'm, um, I'm working on a couple of other non-book projects that I'm not ready to talk about yet, but they're they're compelling for me. Uh, I can't help work on them, and I have some interest in them, so that's even better. Uh, but I am working on another Riley Wolf book, uh, which would be number four. Um, did I get that? Yes. That, yeah, that no, would be you, four. you got it right. I mean, I think in this one you had to, you know, you had to deal. With, you left Monique in such a bad place at the end of Fool Me Twice that you did need to write another book to at least discuss that. But, you know, if you run out of interest in writing them, you 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 have to wrap up those kinds of things. It's unfair right. to, to leave a character in jeopardy like that and, you know, not resolve it. Truth. Patrick, come join us. You can talk about this or you guys can geek out on guitars. <laughs> Hello. Um, let's see here. Any there aren't really any questions. Uh, somebody's made some comments about your earlier discussion saying that the uh, the inmates are obviously running the asylum, which is of course true. Are they referring to me or the political discussion? Political discussion. Oh, oh good. okay. okay. Um, yeah. Let's see, over to YouTube. Yeah, not a lot of real questions this evening. Um, so let's talk about guitars. When okay. did you first? When did you first get into music and tell me a little bit about your collection? Well, music I've always been into um, and I come from a fairly musical family. Um, my mother played piano. Her parents, well, her mother was a well-known contralto. I even have some old 78 RPM recordings of her singing. Really? Um, my father, it was hideously embarrassing because um, among other things, he loved opera, and he would get on his bicycle and ride up and down the string singing arias. Uh, and the fact that he had a decent voice did not help. But he also, when he was on his way to boot camp in World War II and riding the train south to Paris Island, he heard hillbilly music for the first time. So I sort of grew up caught in between La Traviata and Hank Snow. <laughs> so I came to... And Riley Wolf does a very long, not very long, but a long and to me interesting um, parsing of the subject. Music is, um, it's only good or bad. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's good, it's good. And Riley puts it best. He's really good with these turning these phrases. He said, to me, someone who says, I, can on I only like country music, is like someone saying, I can only eat peanut butter. Um, it's, it's all fascinating to me. I have records, recordings of Balinese monkey chants and um, the fabulous Osipov, Osipov Balalaika Orchestra, as well as, you know, original Beatles records, some incredible jazz recordings that were made on a limited edition on Pablo Records, which I don't think is in, in existence anymore. And, um, when I was 10 years old and we were living in Nashville at the time, um, it seemed natural to learn to play the guitar. And I remember sitting on the floor with my best friend, Johnny, learning to play Ghost Riders in the Sky. Did and, you really? I love Ghost Riders. No, 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 no. Yeah, so that, was, that was the first thing I learned to play. And then I started, moved on to chords eventually, which was wonderful. Um, I was, a professional at many stages in my life. I did uh, the coffee house circuit as a folk singer. 
Um, I had a band in LA. I was with a bar band in Florida for a long time. Uh, and it's, it's just something that I've always done that to me, um, <laughs> it's kind of an important, bless you. Um, in fact, I was just in the studio in Fort Myers. Um, a friend has a studio there and uh, recording some of my songs. And I don't know if anything will come of it, if they'll be produced, which they need to be. Um, but I wanted to get some of them down, if nothing else, as a legacy project. That's fantastic. Yeah. And do you have, we see a couple of guitars in the background. Actually, I think one of them is a bass there and then a 12 yes, string is. acoustic. What else, what else you got? Um, when I started getting a little bit of money for the first time in my life, uh, those were the glory days of eBay. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I actually bought my trawler uh, for a ridiculous price on eBay because you could do that then. So I had a deal with my wife, Hillary, that if it was under $200, I could buy it. So among the things I got was a wonderful Kramer double neck. Um, and I have these, um, Switch was the name I couldn't think of earlier, these Switch guitars. This could be, you know, totally propaganda, but what they say is they're made of the same plastic that makes the uh, stealth bombers stealthy. Um, whatever it is, it's, it's a molded plastic thing. It's one piece with an inlaid neck and then the hardware stuck on. One of the things it does is that it sustains the note for two or three hours. You can just hold the string and it, it, it sustains it. It's wonderful. The other thing it does is it makes it weigh about 100 pounds. So playing an entire gig with one is out of the question. But they're really cool guitars. Um, so I have a 12 string, um, a sort of uh, three pickup with a whammy bar Stratocaster looking thing. And I got one for my daughter who's interested. Um, it's half size and bright pink. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, th those are some of my, my favorite oddities. I also have uh, a trace, which is a Cuban instrument, um, a couple of... Uh, more or less normal guitars. And then I have one that I actually paid full price for because I was in love with it, which is um, the Gibson um, ES355. Wow. Uh, cherry red. And um, 335 or 355? I'm not good with this stuff. I'm not a guitar tech guy and I can't quote the even, I don't even know the names of the pickups on some of the guitars. Probably a 335. Okay, sure. It's the BB King one. Yeah. Yeah. 335. Okay. Right. And um uh I have a a, a strata, I mean a, a telecaster. And gotta have a tele, gotta have a Les Paul. Yeah. There's like a handful my of Les, guitars everybody has, right? My Les Paul was stolen. Um ah. I have there was a pawn shop uh that I used to go to. It was called the Music Pawn Shop, and it was located near a university. And the man who owned it told me. The kids come in at the end of the year and I give them 50 bucks, whatever it is, I don't care. Just any guitar, 50 bucks, that's it. And then I sell them for a hundred. So I'd go in at the end of every year to see what he had. And I'd go along the wall, pluck, 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 pluck. And there was one that was just sort of dingy looking and no big deal. And I went pluck and it was like, what was that? And, um, so I bought that for a hundred bucks and it turned out to be a guitar called a crafter, which no one's heard of. It's a boutique thing. And it was made by um, a really good, well-known luthier and a heavy metal band guy. And I don't remember either of their names. It didn't seem important at the time. It's just that they made this beautiful guitar. It's parlor size and it just sounds great. Wow. They had a terrific guitar exhibition at the Musical Instrument Museum here. When was it, Patrick? Before, it was while people could still travel, so it had to be before 2019. But they just had an extraordinary range of guitars and, um, you know, and, and related instruments from all over the world. Beautiful things from India, you know, that um, instruments like that and from South America. It's a great museum if you ever get to come back and see us. Will take you to the musical instrument museum because they have astounding collections of things. Did you spend any time up there, Patrick? Yeah, I've been there a few times. It's it really is a world class yeah. museum. 
Yeah. It's some, I'm trying to remember the guy that founded it. Was it, is it Target? I'm trying, he's from some retail background. I think he made. Oh, I don't know. I think he made his money in Target or something very similar. Um, and then he decided he would do this world-class museum. He tried to, he tried to buy, buy his soul back, but <laughs> we'll take it. Wow. Yeah, I, I always, when my kids were young and at home, and again, mostly through eBay, I tried to get as many different musical instruments as possible. And uh, I don't know how it happened. My wife wants a sitar now. <laughs> but, sitar, really? Yeah, but I have, you know, I had a trombone, a French horn, a saxophone, a clarinet, a flute, all of these things. And the kids would go in and play with them. And uh, all three of them, um, music is a big part of their life. They were all three French horn players. One of them went to conservatory for French horn and came out with a degree as a composer with a minor in French horn. Um, and the youngest one, also a French horn, learned to play the uh, the steel drums too. Um, and uh, is uh, she's she's written music. She's a musical and a theater person, and she's written a lot of songs and even scored a couple of plays. So um, I'm really proud of all of them, and I'm. Uh, you know, this is something I'm I'm really glad I did was to make music part of life, right. as it was for me growing up. That's wonderful, Jeff. Well, I want to thank you very much for sending our books. I'm holding up again. You can see a sort of replica here of what the cover looks like. The Three-Edged Sword, Riley Wolf, in Botswana, and then in a whole lot of trouble going from diamonds to icons. Um, Lots of fun to read it. And if you missed Just Watch Me and Fool Me Twice, uh, they're available now in paperback. And it's kind of fun to catch up on them, although you don't have to read them in any particular order. But I always sort of like to do that. And if you read this one, it will. Well, we've already spoiled what happens to Monique. No, we haven't. We haven't actually no. mentioned Monique in this whole discussion. So there you are. She's in She's in the, this new one, Three-Edged edged Sword, as well. Yep. In um, a coma. Uh, right. Yeah. Yep. But not not the whole book. Uh, she comes out and asks for a drink at one point. No, I'm kidding. It's... No, she does not. Come on. Anyway, um, they're one. They're lots of fun to read. And if you know someone that you know would enjoy a lot of fun for Christmas, just kind of a a nifty adventure, I can recommend this as a gift book. So anyway, thank you all very much for watching tonight, Jeff. Such a pleasure to see you. I hope maybe you'll actually be able to come to Scottsdale on another oh. occasion. Your lips to God's ears. <laughs> we'll, we'll lure you here to the Musical Instrument Museum. See oh, how much of a lure. I always have a great time there. And I thank you once again for inviting me. Oh, it's really our pleasure. Good night, everybody. Thanks Good for night. joining us. Good night, Patrick. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. A hundred percent of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.